A top American sprinter is banned after testing positive following marijuana use. Shakira Richardson has been apologizing on NBC. It will never be a steroid attached to the name Shakira Richardson. The charge and what the, the situation was, was marijuana. I'm not encouraging anybody to do it. I'm not saying, oh, don't do it or anything like that. But if you choose to do things, um, in your personal time or things like that, you just should know, all right, beware of the consequences. She's accepted a one-month ban ahead of the Tokyo Games and still could get to race in an Olympic relay. But should marijuana use lead to such a suspension at all? We'll delve into that on Sport or Not and give you the latest on the fraught build-up to the Olympics and take you inside the ongoing Euro 2020 issues. Plus, how UEFA's overhauled its financial fair play oversight, the influence of George Mendes in football, and World Cricket's moving an event all while its CEO is suspended. Hello and welcome to episode 25 of Sport Unlock, the podcast digesting the best of the week's sports news, analysing all the top stories as we delve behind particularly the big competitions at the moment. We've got the Euros and the Copa America ongoing and we're just weeks away from the start of the Olympics. Alongside me, Rob Harris from the Associated Press, as ever, I'm Martin Ziegler from the Times and Tarek Panja from the New York Times. Welcome back along. Yeah, nice to be with you guys. It's uh, I think the the Euros, for all the fact it's a, a strange time, um, you know, with this pandemic going on and playing in eleven different countries, thousands of miles. Some teams are having to travel. It's been it's been brilliant. I think um, difficult for those some of those national teams involved, but um, all the same, I think it's you know, after a year in which. Um, sport has been so affected by what's been happening in the world. It's been a real breath of fresh air. Football's been excellent. Um, obviously, it's it's different to, to normal, but um, I think it's building up to a really strong climax. And both myself and Tarek have been at Wembley over the last week, where the crowds have gradually been increasing as well. Yeah, that was uh, nice to see crowds at, at meaningful games again. It feels like... Um... You know, we're heading to to the new season with with a bit of optimism with this fantastic tournament. Like Martin said, I mean, all these goals as well. So many, so many goals. It seems like you know, attacking football is is, is ruling the roost, and the viewing figures around Europe have been magnificent, haven't they? Yeah, I mean, obviously, particularly in Britain, over twenty million watching England's victory over Germany, and that was the game with more than 40,000 that and did feel like it was full at Wembley. It was the biggest crowd in the UK at any event legally for, what, 15 months or so. It'd be, it'd be interesting to see what uh, when UEFA look at uh, how the tournament went in terms of like ticket sales and stuff. I, I do think there's a, there are some venues around Europe which haven't sold out, even with the reduced capacities. I think ticket prices are, is going to be something which they may look at because... It, it, it's also it's a difficult wasn't isn't it you know if you compare it to a, a sort of top pop concert or something like that then maybe you think it, it's acceptable but when you look you can go on the website you can buy you could you can buy tickets for the final in london um uh they're on they're still available on the website but you have to spend 950 euros it's it's a lot of money for one match one of the concerns, obviously, about these Euros taking place during the pandemic is the potential risk of coronavirus infection spreading. We've had 
concerns raised in St. Petersburg over a spike in cases there. And we did hear from Public Health Scotland that almost 2,000 coronavirus cases have been linked to Euros games. Distill these figures down, though, and they're not quite what they seem. The fact is, yes, 1,294 people were infected having gone to London for Scotland's game against England, but only 397 of them were actually at Wembley. A lot of these other cases potentially were people watching at homes, in fan zones, or in pubs even. And the crucial thing is that Public Health Scotland couldn't provide is how many people have been infected, having been vaccinated, and did anyone require hospitalisation? But it did get quite a lot of headlines about threat of the Euro spreading coronavirus. Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to actually tell the impact. I suppose time time will tell properly when we when we see the, the numbers, like you say, in the right context. But the, the voices of criticism have been interesting as well. The German foreign minister called it, you know, completely irresponsible to have um, the finals in, in London with that many supporters. And I think the WHO has been critical as well. Uh, you know, it's hard to balance it out. Like we've talked about this magnificent tournament, fans coming back, etc. And then we've you kind of play that alongside some of the stuff we're talking about. You know, again, yeah, like t- time will tell. UEFA really wanted fans there. They've got them there. They've had a they've had a really good tournament. Let's hope the the kind of after parties not 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 some sort of bleak, you know, horror show with, with viruses spread all over Europe when these two and a half thousand VIPs head back to wherever they're coming from. Yeah, German Chancellor Angela Merkel telling Boris Johnson after meetings with the British PM on Friday that she was very much concerned whether it was a bit too much, the 40,000 crowd that saw England play Germany. Of course, she's probably not too best pleased the fact Germany lost. Well, it didn't It didn't prevent her travelling to the, the United Kingdom, did it? So... Um... That, that does seem a bit strange. I mean, I was actually looking at the hospitalisation rates in the UK. They are tiny compared to back in December and January, for example. So, And that's probably a, as a result of the vaccination campaign. So I think it's more of an issue for those countries which haven't had that vaccination um, campaign um, programme to such an extent. Health, though, you know, has been an issue not in other ways in this Euros, um, and we're talking about player overload. Um, I, it, if you look at the FIF Pro, if you look at their website, they actually have a, a, a digital tool where you can see how many matches the the top players have played, and some of those have been involved in the Euros. They basically have not stopped playing since June twenty twenty. I think the, the, the player who's played the most matches is Bruno Fernandes, Manchester United and Portugal. He's played 72 games. And Ruben Diaz, Manchester City and Portugal, he's played more minutes than any other player. So it, you know, we have seen quite a few uh, matches in the Euros where players have pulled up with injuries. I know it happens at every international tournament. It's just be interesting to see, and I think they are going to monitor this, if this is a particular... Uh, effect of of these championships after 13 months of almost continuous play whether players are basically being asked to do too much and you, you mentioned the the data there on number of um you know minutes played and games played but the other thing is is rest there's some interesting stats again from that fifth fifth pro list that players like Romelu Lukaku had had like 
um, a pre-season of eight days or holidays of eight days. He had a week off between last season and this season, which is still, well, his, his season just finished with Belgium being knocked out of the Euros as we record this, this podcast. Um, Ruben Diaz, you mentioned, had nine days off. And like these guys have had no, no holiday as well. And, and that goes for those guys in playing at the Copper America as well. They, they've, they've hardly had off-season breaks as well. And they've gone from Europe to, to South America to play games. Um, it, it kind of feels, again, we'll find out you know, when, when the scientists or whoever the, the experts are do the real analysis. But, you know, we've just watched this um, Belgium-Italy game, a player of the tournament for me, Spinazzola of Italy, the left wing back. He, he was in tears he, he had, appears to have a soft tissue injury of, of some kind. Um, Eden Hazard didn't play for, for Belgium today after injuring a muscle. And we had in the other quarterfinal on Friday, one of Switzerland's top players, Mbola, he, he seemed to have left the field with a hamstring as well. Yes, these happen at a lot of tournaments, but, but these guys are arriving at this event, one of the big blue ribbon tournaments in their careers, absolutely exhausted. They're cream crackered. Yeah, I mean, one of our pod listeners, Gab Marcotti, pointing out on Twitter that Spinozola has had to deal with many injuries in his career. Obviously, what the medics will now be looking at is how much this latest one linked to the massive load of workload over the last year during this congested season. Yeah, and the other issue is that this is going to finish, this tournament's going to finish, finish on July the 11th. Um, a lot of clubs will... He'd be expecting players to return for pre-season training on July the 11th, or if not before. Obviously, they will give them the players involved in the latter stages more, you know, a bit of a break, but it's not going to be that much time until they're back in action again for their clubs. And even more pressing for some of them is actually Spain are going to take six players that are at the Euros to the Tokyo Olympics, which is pretty incredible. I mean, it's not in the FIFA international calendar for mandatory release of players, but apparently in Spain, there is a regulation that forces Spanish clubs to release their players. But in France, they've actually had to name 11 new players to their Olympic football squad because many coaches did block the initial selections. Yeah, well, it was France and France are lucky because they just got this sort of squads and squads and squads of this great talent but you're right you know it's ridiculous that these spanish players who've just had this season are going to are going to have to go to the to the olympics and you can't ask the players they're probably going to say yeah we want it because you're going to win a gold medal but it shouldn't be down down to them to decide there should be some some kind of cap or some way of limiting the minutes the other thing is let's not forget this is going to be a, they're going into a season with the qatar world cup that's moved into november and december so it's this crazy packed schedule from last year because of the pandemic meets another crazy schedule because of um, the World Cup. It's just it's just relentless. Uh, you know, something's got to give somewhere. And in the summer of 2022, clubs are going to want to try going back on pre-season tours again to make up some of the lost revenue during the pandemic. Undoubtedly. I mean, also, Copa America is going on at the moment, um, and I imagine there will be players involved in some of those teams who will also get the call-up to the Olympics. But that, that quite often happens. Of course, there's always questions about whether or not even football should be at the Olympics. It's hardly the pinnacle of the sport, yet it's an extra tournament squeezed into the international football year. 
And the reason it's there, of course, is because it normally sells a lot of tickets held in big stadiums across the host country. But we're counting down to Olympics where we don't even now know if any fans will be allowed in any of the venues as we prepare for the start of the Games on the 23rd of July in Tokyo. And it's been a load of fast moving developments again this week on on the preparations. Yeah, um, the Prime Minister has said that uh, the rising coronavirus infection rate in Tokyo is causing concerns. He's fully prepared for there to be no spectators. Um, I think it was only last week that they said that they they were looking at having 10,000 allowed into each venue. And there's some fairly sort of dramatic um, restrictions being announced um, and some sort of rather controversial warnings and threats, particularly against journalists, for so if they um, dare to breach the sort of quarantine restrictions. We, the Tokyo organisers have said things like, the Japanese public will be watching you and they will, they will name and shame you on social media. Um, security guards will... You're seen like walking on the wrong side of the road and you're going to get, you know, all these fingers pointed at you and say, hey, you know, what the hell are you doing in our country? It's kind of weirdly, I don't know, terrifying, really. Like, how do you do your job? How do you follow the rules? There are so many rules. We mentioned last week this tracking app. Um, and, and, I, and I noticed um, a lot of people are saying that they've been trying to get answers for, the, for all this uncertainty and the organising committee has failed to reply to them. I've had messages from from colleagues elsewhere asking me, you know, what, what you're doing? Have you got a number for X, Y, and Z? Because, you know, as you say, the, the Olympics are upon us and, and there is a lot of confusion still. And obviously, these are games being held in the pandemic. There's a lot of concerns in Japan. We as journalists have got used to restrictions at all the events we go to uh, in football stadiums. We've always been allowed in. In England, through the pandemic, the numbers have been limited. We can't go face-to-face with the players. But we are experiencing a different level of restriction, aren't we, in terms of movements in Tokyo for, for media who are able to go into the country? Two weeks of quarantine to start with as well. That's going to be really interesting. So, you know, most of us aren't going to arrive until fairly close to the games, those of us who are going. So the two weeks of quarantine um, will, will probably mean at least half of your Olympics would would be limited to... Uh, your hotel and a, and, a, and, and, and a pre-authorized list of places you can go to. Yeah, I mean, it does pose challenges for much reporting. I mean, I think the bigger concern is actually preventing any of these restrictions being maintained in years to come at other events where restrictions are in place. And a, a lot of the public do look at us as media and say, well, why do you need to go to these events? We can't travel yet. Obviously, our hope is to be able to impartial report when there is actually something of note that helps to hold people to account still as well because ultimately it's an olympics they're controlling big finances and and running an, a major event where it shouldn't happen in the shadow should it it absolutely shouldn't i mean if you look at some of the you know what the uh, the, the official tokyo rules are stating it says if you are identified walking outside the security guards will ask you to stay in your room and you must follow their instructions if you do not you'll be reported to tokyo 2020 and then you could have strict measures including possible withdrawal of accreditation i mean it, it, it sort of felt really heavy-handed and, and not surprisingly it's provoked um quite a few protests uh, you know let's see if if things loosen up as we get as we get nearer to it and i, I feel to be fair, Rob and I work for pretty uh, strong, um, you know, est- established news organisations. I think 
you know, for freelancers, it's just, um, you know, a lot worse. There's, there's been, um, you know, a few people talking about it. Some of the people we know, I don't want to, obviously, it's up to them to talk publicly. But but for freelancers in particular, and those at smaller organisations, it's, 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 I think, going to be a, a lot more difficult. And it just feels, you know, a little bit uneven, a little bit unfair. And, and you know, it's no small cost as well to, to say that you're going to go and cover an Olympics as a freelancer all the way to Tokyo. You know, you could say, well, why do you need to go? But this is their bread and butter. This is the this people's livelihoods, and they cover these events. Uh, it's um, it's going to be extremely extremely challenging. There was some other IOC uh, news as well this week, uh, guys. Yeah. So the 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 controversial issue about um, political demonstrations at the Olympics is something which has actually been it's been going on for as long as I've covered the Olympics, which is sort of the last twenty years. Uh, so they have actually relaxed it somewhat, the IOC. They've always been absolutely adamant nothing can be allowed. But what they've now said is that you are allowed to make a um, demonstration or, or a protest within certain parameters uh, um, before the start of your event. But this still bans anything. You're not allowed to take the knee on the podium. The famous black power salute that Tommy Smith and John Carlos did in Mexico 68 on their podium that's still banned so it's uh, it's trying to sort of answer the demands from some of the athletes involved but it, it it's very much a halfway house which is half the course as far as the IOC is concerned so an athlete can take an e at the start of competition say on the start line but not if they win on the podium after collecting gold yeah, as far as the IOC are concerned, the, the podium is the holiest of holies, uh, yeah, sacrosanct. It's quite hard. They're trying to thread the needle, aren't they, here? There is a lot of uh, backlash they would have faced if they had come down hard, given the current uh, environment, social justice campaigns across the globe from from, from, from athletes um, across, across sports. Marcus Rashford in, in, in the UK, uh, tennis players, athletes... Um, Across across the world, be interesting what type of protests we see and whether they're going to all be allowed. There's so many different issues at stake, and and that will be um, one for the IOC to to opine on. And I'm sure they will. It'll give us um, something to write about as well. Yeah, interesting. If you look at the, the wording, um, it makes it clear that any sort of thing, for example, uh, when at the Beijing Winter Olympics next year, that sort of anti-host um, protests, for, for example, people protesting about the treatment of the Uyghurs or human rights in Hong Kong, that will not be permitted. Well, of course, a lot of this did start to be reassessed after the protest by athletes, the action after the murder of George Floyd in the US in 2020. And what we saw then really is probably started in the Bundesliga, didn't it, where players took matters into their own hand. They chose to wear the Justice for George Floyd t-shirts. There was attempts to impose sanctions on them, and eventually you got FIFA saying that common sense should apply. Are we just going to see at this Olympics that athletes do what they want to do, and if they deem a cause worth campaigning for in the middle of a competition, on the podium, they will. And if the IOC did try to punish them, there'd be a huge backlash against the Olympic movement. Exactly. We saw it. We saw it this this Euros, actually, what kind of backlash you get if you kind of get it wrong with UEFA and what happened um, with with Pride in Munich. It's very similar. They they, they, they banned the rainbow colours at the 
the, the Munich Stadium. We, we talked about this, I think, last week. And, you know, whether right, wrong, whatever you may think of it, the, the, the public scorn, the criticism came in from all quarters. And I think not only do these organisations feel it, but the sponsors that pay millions of euros and dollars and yen into their bank accounts also start to feel it. And that, that's kind of changed the debate as well. And not, not, not long after we go to Beijing, after Tokyo, we have the Qatar World Cup. We've already had um, protests and T-shirts uh, voicing solidarity for for uh, migrant workers in Qatar, for example. Could we see that in Qatar, for for example, at, um, at the World Cup there? I actually think in terms of making a protest, it's actually quite a good thing that it's still banned by the IOC because then it makes the protest all that much more um, hard-hitting. I mean, the fact, you know, I can mention Tommy Smith and John Carlos, you know, it trips off my tongue 53 years after they made their protest when I was one year old, um, is is a, uh, it just shows what an incredible, powerful action that was. And if that can be replicated in any way in, in any other Olympics, for, you know, for a, a similar cause, then fantastic. And if it's, you know, if it's, given extra prominence by the fact it's against the IC rules, then so much the better. Well, one athlete we don't know whether or not she'll be going to Tokyo yet is the American sprinter Shakari Richardson. She was a great medal hope for them, but she's been caught taking marijuana and she did accept a 30-day suspension that ends on July the 27th. So she would still be in time to run the relays. But the question is, is the punishment to lenient or actually should a sprinter not be banned at all for having taken any marijuana yeah it's a, i think it's a it's a real shame she's um 21 years old a real gold medal contender and it, yeah it was a recreational drug a mistake she wasn't trying to boost her performance as well and in, in her mitigation if there is any uh, you know she said it was after her finding out her birth mother had died um, and uh, yeah, quite quite sad uh, what, what happened to her. But I suppose, I guess these rules are the rules, and, and it's you could say it's lenient or not lenient. But but it, like I said, it wasn't performance enhancing, and that's what's on the paper. It's uh, it's it's heartbreaking in in many ways for her, and a shame for for you know, the Olympics that you lose one of the the biggest stars from one of the biggest races, the, the women's hundred meters. But Martin, you know, the, what do you think? The rules are, are there, I guess. Well, you know, I, I actually think the rules are, are, are wrong. Uh, the Marana rules does do state that marijuana is prohibited, but it doesn't say it's performance enhancing. I just can't see any. I can't see any justifiable argument for for imposing bans on athletes. I mean, if anything, it's it, it's the opposite of performance enhancing. Um, it, it really is. Uh, you know, you, you know, you can perhaps make an argument for like I don't know, something like a snooker player or something like that that may, may sort of. I mean, I mean, I just even that I think is probably unlikely. Um, but it just, it's just one of those things. It, it 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 seems like a sort of historic thing. It was added in when people thought all recreational drugs should be part of the you know the, the list. Um, 
I think it's an anachronism and I, I think it's wrong and I think it's a great shame that she's going to have to miss the Olympics because of it. Her sponsors have backed her as well. I saw Nike put a statement out saying they appreciated her kind of candour, honesty and accountability and continue to support her through, through that time. But it kind of speaks to your point. It's not as if she was trying to cheat anyone. This is something... Something that she did might might regret it. It was in the moment she did that, um, and just a shame, really, isn't it? Yeah, very different, obviously, to say Christian Coleman's band, another US sprinter who uh, suspended for missing tests, and then we covered on previous episode about Shel- Shelby Houlihan, who was banned for what she blamed was tainted meat in a burrito. Another another athlete who, like Coleman, will miss the Olympics for, for failing to appear at the appointed time for random drug testing is the um, Nigerian-born Bahraini athlete Saliwa Eid Nasser, who was, you know, one of the favourites for the 400 metres. She, she's going to miss it. You've got to wonder, you know, these, these athletes, especially these ones who are gold medal contenders like Coleman, like NASA in this case, it's kind of important to be where you're supposed to be. I know people might think it's like a big ask, but, you know, it's an hour of the day. You're going to be appearing at this event, which is the most important event in your career, the, the thing that pays your bills, the thing that makes you wealthy, the thing that you're going to be known for. Just be there. To miss threes in a calendar year is kind of spectacularly thick as well, I'd say. Once you've done two, surely, surely you're going to be around for that third one. And this is two big champions. To you, I think it's a, that is, you know, that's a much bigger issue than um, somebody who, who smokes marijuana um, and you know, falls foul of US anti-doping rule book, which says athletes who smoke marijuana um, potentially uh, open themselves up to greater risk because they have slower reactions and make poor decisions, which is the argument the USN anti-doping use. Um, no, 100% agree with you there, Martin, but that's why um, a Coleman and, and um, NASA's are multi-year bans, not not a month. Unfortunately for for the for the sprinter there, it's it's a month, but it's a month just before the Olympics. It's It's just a real shame. If this was, I don't know, another time of the year, you take it on the chin, right? It's just this is like the biggest, most costliest joint she may have ever smoked. There seems to be a growing list of people who don't actually want to go to the Olympics, particularly in tennis. We've had Rafa Nadal, Serena Williams, Simona Halep and Dominic Team. So a lot of people really not ranking the games as important based on our priorities for the year, given all the restrictions that are being placed there. It won't be a particularly enjoyable experience for them either. No, and also it'd be interesting to see if some of those at Wimbledon are going to make it. For example, Serena Williams was was forced to pull out um, after slipping on on court at Wimbledon. Not the only person. It's been interesting to try and get this tournament underway with this roof um, adding to injuries at, at the tournament. And for a lot of these players, given the pandemic, etc., it's been such a up and down year for the sport. And then coming back getting her again we talked about this at the start of the podcast all the various injuries it's it's um it's not the easiest time to be a professional athlete is it no and 
I think those people who have to make those decisions um, and thinking about their paychecks, obviously you don't get any pay for going to the Olympics. Um, whether you're, so if you're a professional tennis player or a professional golfer, you're effectively going there for the sport, for your country and not for cash in the bank. Well, some might say some of the most lucrative jobs in sport are actually on various committees and away from the Olympics and back to UEFA. We've had some news of appointments to the Financial Fair Play Committees. Yeah, we've had some interesting appointments to the club financial control bodies, the CFCB. Pretty much wholesale changes from the panels that adjudicated the controversial cases we've had in recent years, notably... Manchester City, I suppose, the most notable one that ended up with Cass overturning the two-year ban. The most interesting appointment for me was the former US soccer president, Sunil Gulati, first non-European to be put in charge of the investigatory committee. He's going to be losing his, his football role at FIFA soon. He's on the FIFA council, maybe wanting a home. He's, he's very good friends with the UEFA president, Alexander Seferin. And, you know, which is great, great for Sunil Gulati, economics professor at Columbia, probably has a CV. But I guess, I don't know, when, when one's considering how independent these bodies are, you probably want arm's length relationships from the UEFA administration, from the president, etc. And this, this might be one that some people, I've had messages from people, for example, saying perhaps this one's one that is a little bit too close. There's also a Slovenian lawyer who is, I think, the vice uh, person on on that particular body, the investigatory chamber. And she's also linked to the UEFA president. Her her and her husband are linked to current UEFA presidents from a law firm in Slovenia. And again, you think, you know, perhaps got the qualifications, etc. But are you too close to the administration? What do you think? Well, it's very strange that somebody is based in New York is going to be dealing with these cases in Europe. Um, but, I mean, I presume you'll have to spend a lot, lot of time actually flying across the Atlantic if that's the case. You can't do everything remotely on, on that front, can you? Um, or maybe you can. Uh, but it's a, it's a, it's an interesting one. Sunil Galati has been around international football a long time, hasn't he? You know, we've uh, we've known him for for the best part of two decades both first at US Soccer, then at CONCACAF, then at FIFA Council itself. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what comes out of that. And he certainly knows his European football. He made the trip during the pandemic from the US to Portugal to watch the Chelsea-Man City Champions League final in Porto the other week. He did. Perhaps that's where this, this thing was sealed. But guys, let me ask you again, though, on independence. How important is independence? On, on these on these on these committees, be it disciplinary or, or, or investigative, is it important? Or if you're, if you're someone's pal, does it matter? Well, you've got to balance independence and knowledge. And how many times we've we seen people appointed to these committees ruling on governance or finances that perhaps are less familiar with the issues, seem perhaps too distant. Then on the flip side is uh, the danger that actually someone appears too close and might. It, it, it doesn't create the distance that you need for some of these very, very contentious investigations. In this case, when you're investigating whether or not clubs have breached financial fair play, which, as we've seen, can lead to clubs being banned from European competitions. 
I'd argue it's a good thing, though, isn't it, to, to not know anything and you just look at the piece of paper and the details? Yeah, we've had um, the former Belgian Prime Minister Yves Le Term uh, as the head of the investigatory arm before. Um, in fact, he was actually uh, named by Manchester City in their appeal against the uh, UEFA's proceedings over financial fair play um, as being um, some, somebody they absolutely criticised for his conduct. So you know, he was independent as far as we can tell, but that didn't stop him from encountering um, a serious attack from the club involved. The, 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 other, thing, the other thing I noticed is the CVs of, of, of these guys are... are there are a few more unknown characters than, than in the previous ones. The other, again, on paper, not not there's not all of them. I mean, Sunil carries a great deal of, of heft there, I suppose. You, you've described what he's done. But there's just random lawyers from Liechtenstein in Italy that no one's really heard of. Uh, the previous group included people from the European Union. There's a lot of people who have gone. There's uh, Mr Timmermans from the EU has disappeared. Damien Nevin from the European Union lawyer from the European Union has disappeared. The judge, Cunha, from European Court of Justice, he's gone. The new guy is a, um, the head of the adjudicatory chamber, appears to be a lecturer at the Sorbonne, which is, you know, a lovely place to work, etc. But I don't know if they have the same degree of, 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 of heft. They're, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the people who left expressed their frustration when, when they did leave. At the process, you saw a lot of their cases reversed in the end, and I don't know. You know, we've already talked about this in previous episodes. How you know UEFA is looking to reform financial fair play. The old system is 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 going. Sufferings talked about luxury taxes. I don't know. Maybe it's going to be more of a collegiate situation. More more deals made, and and we're going to not see this idea of or the threat of clubs being banned in the future, and and whatever we had in the past might be. Rightly or wrongly, you can argue either way, watered down a little bit and, and some new rules being brought in. And it, maybe it doesn't matter who are on these panels looking at the future. Well, we still do await details on exactly how financial fair play will be reformed. And uh, the world of sports governance always does keep us busy away from football too. In cricket, there have been some new developments following the suspension of the ICC chief executive, Manu Sorni. Yeah, so this is um, something which has been a bit of a toxic atmosphere in the ICC over the last year. Um, the new chairman's come in. There's been sort of the the, the various countries involved that have been jostling for power. And one thing that's happened, in, which we knew in March, was that uh, Manu Sorni uh, was suspended following a, a review by Pricewaterhouse into the, the whole sort of structure and administration of the organisation. Um, what's now emerged is he, he has hit back at the ICC um, in a sort of detailed document, which is um, various media organisations have, have, have received, alleging he's the, the victim of, of a premeditated witch hunt. Um, he's absolutely denied the fact the allegations that he bullied staff or that he was aggressive um and he says this is the the icc chairman greg barkley um is, is effectively the sort of judge jury and execution in the process and that it's a blatant attempt to force him from office so a very difficult time for international crickets ruling organization 
and there have been some hearings, yet it's unclear, I think, what the next stage in this process is. Well, he's uh, he he uh, in March he took three months off leave with, with a, what he said was a stress related illness. He's due to come back any at any time, and then we will see uh, the the disciplinary hearing will take place, and from that we will see if he uh, if it is forced to resign or if he is sacked or any other disciplinary action is taken. Um, it's watch this space. Ziggs, um, and I kind of say this every week now, but again, these organisations, they're, they're kind of a law unto themselves. There's no independent oversight of any of these places. So this is the governing body of cricket based in Dubai, I think. No, no one else is looking at what they're doing. It's all going to be done in-house. Again, it, it just seems like sport can't be trusted to look after itself. There's going to be surely, as usual some sort of compromise done and we're going to move on. I said in Asia in particular, it's kind of a bit of a black hole. I remember um, we talked about this weeks and weeks and weeks ago. There was a case of the Asian Football Confederation that Cass had ruled that um, Sheikh Ahmed of Kuwait had tried to manipulate the elections there. They kind of proved that point. They said a, a female official who tried to stand for the FIFA Council she she was um, wrongly denied a chance at a fair fight. And that Cass ruling, which came months ago, has kind of been met with um, silence, continuing silence. You get a pithy statement. We saw one from FINA last week after the Sun Yang swimming hearing, which we talked about, saying, oh, we're going to study the ruling and we will come back to you in due course. But they never actually do come back. And... The whole jamboree rolls on. There's malfeasance, bad governance, accusations, etc. And this is across the board, it seems. I think certainly in those political uh, issues, and um, there is absolutely um, a black hole when it comes to governance. I suppose you can argue from an ICC administration point of view that if somebody is guilty of, of, of some sort of staff issue, such as bullying behaviour, if it was in any of our organisations, then the you know the chairman, the executive chairman would would, would say you know, have a disciplinary process, and the person involved would be sacked. So you could argue for the IEC, ICC are just doing that. It's an internal matter. It's an internal staff member. It's not a political appointment, and then therefore they can take that sort of action. And in the meantime, they've actually had some big decisions to be making because this week they've decided to move the uh, ICC Men's 2020 World Cup that was due to be staged in India and they've moved it to the UAE and Oman. That's taking place across October and November. So it's a reminder actually that even as we look later in the year, that events are still expected to be disrupted by the pandemic. And so all this happening at a pretty critical time for the ICC. It is indeed. It's not just cricket. The Rugby League World Cup is, is due to take place in England in the autumn. But there's uncertainty over whether New Zealand and Australia will come now because they're reluctant to put themselves into a difficult position. And one thing for certain, if, if they don't come, then there is no World Cup. It'll have to be postponed. Yeah, one of the other things, Rob, that's been hit by the pandemic was never going to be stopped, I suppose, is the, uh, the football transfer market. We've got the Euros that's already started. But people are moving, players are moving, and, and coaches are moving. Spurs, for example, have finally 
got a, a new coach, Nuno Santo de Spirito, former Wolves manager, client of a certain George Mendes, super agent extraordinaire. He's already placed one of his clients at Wolverhampton to replace Nuno. And in fact, had lined up another of his clients, Reno Gattuso, to go to Tottenham after he left Fiorentina after just 23 days. He hadn't even started. His first day of the job was supposed to be July the 1st. And funny enough, the reason for his departure from Fiorentina was, according to people at that Italian club, George Mendes. Gattuso, they allege, certainly privately, arrived with a list of players and they were all clients of George Mendes. It's kind of extraordinary that even now, after everything is known, that there's certain few agents, they they almost have the, the transfer market and the sport in, the, in a vice-like grip. It's kind of incredible. And he did already bring Matt Doherty from Wolves to Tottenham, even for Nuno's arrival a year ago. And of course, what Mendes is doing is not necessarily breaking any of football rules, is it? It's not breaking them at the moment. It'll be interesting to see if FIFA managed to push through their new agents' regulations. Um, specifically in, in relation to his relationship with Wolfhampton Wanderers, where the the owners have a stake in just a Futi's parent company. But, I mean, I, I've been looking this week at um, some of the deals that Mendes has done for, for Wolves. And the four biggest deals involving that club last season, they all involved him, or just a Futi, and Talents Throne, the agency which is run by the former just a Futi executive, Valdir Cardozo, um, representing the player, the selling club, and the registering club. They're being paid by all three parties. Um, I, I know that they, the, you know, the, the, the two agencies are now separate from each other, but it just shows that the, 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 the level of influence he has around that club and in English football is, is big. And now, with Nuno going to Spurs, it's going to get even bigger. Well, he already had Mourinho there as well. I suppose one of the things we forgot to mention, one Mendes client departed, another one arrives, and it is kind of the, the Mendes carousel that, that is going around. I don't know how many tens or hundreds of millions of euros move every summer at the, at the whim of, of this guy. And I don't know how... What, what I'd be interested in as a fan or someone who follows football is how many of these transfers are, are done for the right reasons? Does the club need this player? Is 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 it is it because of the the influence of this agent you're going to do a favour to that guy? It it feels like a, a bubble or something that is doesn't make any any sense from a kind of sporting perspective. You know, do, do you know what I mean? Is it some of this feels a bit strange? And for Mendes's perspective, he's just good at his job. He manages to convince players to sign up to him, clubs to move the players, buy the players, he gets a big cut of it and more players and managers seem to come to him to want to have him as their agent. Or is a lot of it about perception? So actually, if you have a perception of influence that builds and builds, then actually you get more of this business. We saw it perhaps with Mina Raiola at Manchester United as well, where it seemed that they were so heavily associated with him and his clients. And then you might get clubs fearing upsetting certain agents as well because you're so reliant on them to eventually get their star players. Yeah, I think George Mendes is perhaps a case apart. I mean, the relationships he has with certain clubs, Porto, for example, I mean, you know more about this than than, than me or most people, Tarek, but um, 
it, it really does seem to have an incredibly deep um, web of connections. Yeah, now if you speak to the point, it's not just Porter, Porter, Benfica, you know, he was in a sport, they, they in and out, but when, he, when he's in, when he's out, they need him in again. They realise that through some sort of feat of alchemy or, or, or whatever else that we don't know behind that magic curtain of his, he's able to extract these prices for players that, that they wouldn't ordinarily be able to. And you have to ask why, what what is going on? And I think this is one for football's authorities. You know, FIFA are trying to change the rules, etc. But maybe something more fundamental needs to happen to the transfer market. Something about, you know, something away from the money aspect, perhaps, you know, how many players you can sign in one um, window, how players are signed, what contracts, like all of it, like all of it needs to be re-looked re at. Because to me, apart from the very top end, and even there, the business model of a lot of these clubs is is based not on any kind of footballing success or playing good football or earning TV rights, is is um, farming human talent and trading it along for, for the, on the conveyor belt. Not necessarily trying to compete for anything really beyond selling football players in a marketplace. It just seems that the industry and the game has arrived at this really weird point where this is an end in itself. Not winning trophies, not playing football on the field, but trading human beings. Well, a busy time for the agents in the transfer window, but no transfers in this podcast. Same lineup again. And we've finally reached episode 25 of Sport and Lot since we started in January. And we've certainly had a lot that's been keeping us busy and always good to hear your feedback. We're at Sport and Lot on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. You can also email us sportandlotpod at gmail.com. Of course, the most important thing is to hit subscribe on whichever podcast platform you're listening to us on. And uh, it's always interesting to read some of your feedback too. Um, some very nice comments that people have left. Yeah, quarter of a century. Congratulations, guys! It's been it's been great. Um, look forward to the next twenty five. Um, and as you say, yeah, it's always really interesting to see what people have to say. There've been some great ideas people have mentioned on Twitter and other social media. So yeah, keep it coming. Martin Tarek, thanks a lot as ever. Enjoy the sports viewing in the days ahead, and thank you everyone for listening. Goodbye for now. 